in our verse-by-verse study of John's Gospel. So we'll be in chapter 3 of the fourth book of the New Testament, the fourth Gospel, John's Gospel. Chapter 3, we'll begin reading at verse 15, and we'll cover the end to the end of the chapter, verse 36. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Pastor John will slip you a Bible so you can follow along. Verses 15 through 36 of John chapter 3 will be our text this morning as we continue to look at this just incredible, wonderful gospel um, of John. John chapter 3, again, we'll start reading. We covered the first 14, actually the first 15 last week. And we'll finish the chapter this morning. So, Father, we ask that you would just bless our time in the study of your word. Father, we do pray that um, as we come into this place, that we would understand that Jesus came to bring life and to bring light. He brings life to us so we're not condemned. Lord, he brings life to us so we have a living hope. And, Lord, he is the source of eternal life. And he brings light. He brings light to this dark world. And he brings light to the darkness of the circumstances and situations that we face. So, Lord, may we be comforted knowing that you are our help, that you are our shield, our protector, our provider. And, Lord, that you see us and you know us in every circumstance that we face. And you love us and your promises are true. So, Lord, I pray that uh, we would just sense your presence in a very real way as your word just is touching our hearts. And so, Lord, we give this time to you. Help us be attentive, and Lord, help us to make application, and Lord, to just grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So you recall, if you were with us last week, that when we opened up chapter 3, we were introduced to an an individual His name was Nicodemus, and we know that Nicodemus, we were told, was a very religious man. He was a member of a religious sect called the Pharisees. They were 6,000 men uh, at the time of Jesus who were dedicated to keeping the most minute details of the law. So he was a Pharisee. He was also a ruler, which means that he was a member of the Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin Council. He was also one that was very intelligent. He was the master teacher of Israel. This is what Jesus says about this man, Nicodemus. So he had dedicated his life to studying the scriptures and studying the law and teaching the law to others. And it's also interesting that Nicodemus is a Greek name, which gives us indication that he was also very intelligent in other areas as well, in other subjects, because the Greeks were into intellect. So here is a man that's very religious, he's very intelligent, he's a man with a great reputation, and even though he seems to be a man that is highly esteemed and looked upon and seen as so righteous to the world and to his countrymen, he was a man that was wrestling, he was wondering uh, about uh, things, eternal things. And he's watching this one who comes into Jerusalem at the time of the feast, This one who has no religious credential, he's not a part of the religious establishment in Israel, and yet here comes Jesus into Jerusalem at that time, and he's working signs, and he goes into the temple at the time of Passover, 
and he overturns the uh, money changers' tables. He drives out uh, the sacrifices, and he rebukes the religious leaders. He says that you've made my father's house a house of merchandise. And so Nicodemus, as he's watching this, he's, you know, cut to the heart. And he goes to see Jesus at night, and, and here's Nicodemus not only meeting with Jesus face to face, but sharing his heart with him as well, going heart to heart. And it was at night, it was probably an opportune time for these two to meet uninterrupted as people in the nighttime uh, would sit out on their rooftops in the cool air and they would talk and spend time uh, with each other and, and that was when Nicodemus came to Jesus. So he comes to him and, and he's wrestling, he's wondering. He says, we know that you're a teacher that comes from God for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus would answer him most directly and say, that Nicodemus, if you want to be born again, uh, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, when he heard Jesus say that, that Nicodemus, you personally, if you want to see heaven, if you want to see the kingdom of God, here is a man who's dedicated his life to teaching the law, keeping the law, the most minute details of the law. He was a separated one, a dedicated one, and then teaching it to others. He'd never heard anything like that before. And here's this one that he knows that you come from God because you are doing these signs and, and no one could do that unless he uh, has God with him. And all of a sudden he hears, you must be born again, Nicodemus. So Nicodemus, who was thinking uh, in the physical realm, he's wrestling with this and he said, how can this be? How can a man be born when he's old? And Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. All of us, we know people that they believe that they can see the kingdom of God by their fleshly works and their fleshly efforts. They think that if I am good enough, that's the big deception in the world today and a big deception of the enemy, that if you're good enough, then you're going to make it to heaven. If you're good enough, you're a good person or you belong to the church or you give to the church or you're a good husband, a good wife, whatever that might mean, then you're going to make it to heaven. And here is Jesus saying, no, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. So we left off at verse 15 where Jesus began to express how it is that we can be born again. And after he ex explains that you must, he didn't say, well, I think it's a good idea. Or here's a suggestion for you. He said, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must, not maybe, but you must be born again. And so here we see the first must of John chapter 3. And then in verse 14, we left off with seeing the second must, and that is that Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up um, on the cross. In other words, Nicodemus, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be nailed to Calvary's cross to die for the sins of humanity, to die for your sins specifically. And it's interesting, in verse 14, that verb lifted up takes on the meaning of not only being crucified, as Jesus would be pinned to that cross, dying for our sins, and he was lifted up. In other words, as he hung on that cross, he was hanging between heaven and earth for all to see. But also, it has the meaning lifted up of being glorified. As Jesus is lifted up, uh, he 
It is his means to be exalted. In other words, Warren Worsby would say this, that the cross was not the end of his glory, it was the means of his glory. It was in John chapter 17 that we're going to read later on in our study of John's gospel that Jesus, right before he would go to the cross, he would pray to the Father and say, Father, my hour has now come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. So Jesus, his name is exalted above all names, and the way to that exaltation was through the cross. So I must be lifted up, Nicodemus, and we know that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the difference between perishing and eternal life is faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we're born again. That we come and we humble ourselves and humble our hearts and say that I recognize that I'm a sinner and I am in need of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, who died for my sins, was buried, and he rose again from the grave, and he's alive. And he is Lord. His name is above all names. And every knee and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, most of us have done that here in this life. We have been born again as we've come in faith in Jesus Christ, and we have the hope of heaven. We have the hope of eternal life. And that word hope, again, in Scripture, as we use it in that text that I am, that it means that it's come in certainty. But there is going to be a day when there is going to be that judgment of non-believers that they will be forced to say that Jesus, that you are Lord, that you are your name above uh, all other names. So it leads to his glorification as well, the cross. And um, so we're a forgiven people. And for God so loved, verse 16, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Perhaps the, the most important text in all of the Bible. Perhaps we can say the most famous text in all of the scripture. Out of over 31,300 verses in the Bible, this is the one. This is the one that is most memorized and familiar to Christians and even non-Christians. And in this verse, in John chapter 3, verse 16, you have 25 words, and in the middle of this verse is the word son, S-O-N. It's interesting that in our solar system, the sun, S-U-N, that it is the center of the solar system, and in the center of the sun... Scientists tell us that in the center of the sun is 15 million degrees Celsius. Now, we can't even imagine that kind of heat. But the sun with its heat and, and the surface of the sun as it radiates that heat and the earth is put in its perfect place and orbiting around the sun, it gives us light. It gives us life and enables plant growth. And, and so the sun is very, very important. So the sun is placed in the middle of the solar system given life, given light to us, as we know. And I just want to say this, that make sure that in your life that you are centered on the Son, S-O-N. That is, you keep the Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the center of every verse of your life. Again, when Paul was writing to the Ephesian church, he wrote in chapter 1, verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. So the plan of God is this. Just as Travis was in our worship time talking about being that soldier 
that is enlisted, that soldier that will endure hardship for Jesus Christ. And a soldier doesn't get entangled with the affairs of this life, of this world. So the plan of God is this, to gather everything together in the heavens and on the earth, to gather everything together in His Son, in the fullness of time. All things are going to be restored to Christ, everything. So as we see that if it is not centered on the Son, that is, it's not surrendered to the Son. It's not, you know, one that is, belongs to the Son linked to the Son, Jesus Christ, that is going to be done away with. It's going to disappear. And when I really begin to think about that, it impacts the way that I live my life. What I live for, what are my priorities, what it is that I'm doing, uh, what it is that, that I'm thinking about and taking into my mind. When I center my life and my heart and my mind and my strength on the Son, Jesus Christ, then life really has eternal meaning and purpose. And anything that Jesus is not a part of your life, you know, really you can get rid of it, you can junk it. Because it is out of harmony with the purpose that God has ordained for everything. And when I keep Jesus the center of everything in my life, my marriage, my kids, my family, what it is that you do vocationally, at work, if you own a business, what it is that you do recreationally, your hobbies, what do you enjoy doing in life. If all of these things are linked to the Son, then you will find ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction and eternal purpose in those things. But if any of those areas that the Lord is not a part of or the Lord is left out, then I'm missing the big picture, the center of my life on the Son. For God did not send his son, verse 17, into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So Jesus didn't come to condemn people, but to reach out and save people so that people might come to eternal life, to salvation. Now there's a story of a traveler that was traveling around. Perhaps you've heard this story before. And on his journey, he falls into some quicksand. And he begins to go down quickly. And all of a sudden, as he's going down, Confucius comes by and looks at him and says, Confucius say, it is evident that man should avoid such situations. And he goes on his way, and the guy's still sinking. Then Muhammad comes by, and Muhammad, he says to the guy sinking in the quicksand, Alas, it is the will of Allah, you infidel. And he went on his way. And then Buddha came by, and Buddha looked at this man as he's sinking and said, let this man's dilemma be an illustration for many. And then Krishna came by, one of the leaders and teachers of Hinduism. Uh, they believe in reincarnation. And he looked at this man and he said, well, better luck next time. Then our Lord came by, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, and he reached down and he pulled him out of that quicksand and saved him. And you see, that story just illustrates that's what's so unique about Christianity and our Lord and his love. All others tell you what you have to do to get to heaven, to reach up to heaven. But they cannot help you when you're sinking in the quicksand of sin. 
Only Jesus reached down. The one who came from heaven, only Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him and only him might be saved. He didn't come just to give us some cute spiritual sayings. He didn't come just to try to make us religious people. He came to save us. He came to, to give us opportunities. We come to him to not only be forgiven, but have true relationship with God that comes through Jesus Christ. And he reached out to us. How did he reach out to us? By stretching out his arms and allowing himself to be pinned to that cross that was hanging there and put up there on Mount Calvary, as he died for you because of his love for you. So Jesus coming to give us eternal life. In verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So God loves you. He sent his Son for you, not that you would be condemned, but saved. Those who do not believe on his name, the name of the only begotten Son of God is condemned. So the gospel given to us very, very clearly here in John chapter 3, that God so loved the world, he gave freely and willingly his only begotten son because of his love. And God demonstrated, as Romans chapter 5 tells us, his love for us, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you and for me in our sinful state to bring us life, to bring us alive again, because Ephesians 2 tells us just as Nicodemus was told that you're dead in your sins and trespasses, but God has made us alive. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. Surrendering your life to the one who's going to be lifted up on the cross. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but has eternal life. And so verse 19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So when the light of God is shined, it exposes the evil and the darkness that men love to live in and practice. And the reason that people do not come to the light, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, is because they would rather live in darkness. In other words, they would rather continue in their sinful lifestyles and practices. And so G Jesus is telling Nicodemus something very important. Hey, the light, that is me, has come into the world. But men love the darkness rather than come into the light. Everyone practicing evil hates the light. And yesterday I was doing some weeding out in the garden, and I got some decorative rock. And uh, I had to move one, and as I you know, kind of flipped it over underneath that rock there was all kinds of bugs and beetles and as soon as the light came in and hit those bugs they just scurried everywhere they, they were moving about they were very active because those bugs like the darkness they like being underneath that rock they like being in the dark they they like it in those conditions people will say to you and to me well I'm not going to come to the light of Jesus Christ because I can't really, you know, uh, I can't relate to Jesus and the Bible intellectually. Or I don't believe that he's the only way to heaven. Uh, I, I don't 
you know, like what the Bible has to say about this or that. But oftentimes, listen, the issue is they don't want to come to the light. They want to continue to live in darkness. Like those bugs that were underneath that rock. They don't like the light to expose them because they would have to change their lives if they come to Jesus Christ. And they don't want to change their lives. Because light always exposes. It exposes the darkness. And when God's light shines on a person's heart, if they refuse to receive it, then they will flee from it. And so we see this wonderful address of Jesus to Nicodemus that's been recorded for us. And I am so thankful that this conversation that took place in the nighttime 2,000 years ago is recorded for you and for me so we know very clearly that we must be born again and that God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son and he came to give us light and to give us life and to save the lost sinner. And so we have a wonderful gospel message that's recorded for us. And now as we continue on, we're going to see that John the Baptist, his last testimony and witness of Jesus is given here before he's thrown into prison. So here is John the Baptist still in the wilderness, still on the scene, baptizing people, pointing people, and, and uh, preparing the way of Jesus to come, preparing people to, to see Jesus. In verse 22, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing in Enon, near Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So John here, he's in the area of the wilderness at the Jordan River. He's in the area of Enon because there was much water there. He's baptizing. Again, saying, Behold the Lamb of God. Prepare the way of the Lord. It was a baptism of repentance. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, oftentimes, the, we will say to the Lord, Lord, where am I supposed to be? And what is your will for me? What is it that I should be doing? And you see, John the Baptist, he knew what it was that he was supposed to be doing. He, he was in the wilderness baptizing, giving that message of, behold the Lamb of God. He was preparing the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist, we know, he delighted in the Lord. He knew that he was a voice for preparing of the Lord. And John the Baptist was there where there was much water. Where are you supposed to be? What are you supposed to be doing? David would write in the scriptures in Psalm 37 that delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. And a key for us who say, where do you want me to be, Lord? What is it that you want me to do? The key is you delight yourself in the Lord. In other words, enjoy the Lord. Draw close to the Lord. That's what you are to do. Focus on Him and trust in Him. Grow in the knowledge and love of Jesus Christ. And like John the Baptist, He's going to give you the desires of your heart. That's what David would write. That's the promise of Scripture. Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Feed on His faithfulness. And here's the thing. As you delight in the Lord, His desires are going to become your desires. That's how it's worked out in the Christian life. I'm going to delight in the Lord. I'm just going to, to grow in my relationship and my fellowship with Jesus Christ. 
I'm going to be surrendered to him. I just want to live and rest in his love and just enjoy the Lord. Can I ask you a question this morning? Do you enjoy the Lord and draw close to him? And as you delight in the Lord, then he's going to begin to put things on your heart. And then he's going to lead you to where there is much water. So I'll be where he wants me to be. I'll be doing what he wants me to do. If you're just truly loving God, if you're truly just loving the Lord, then the desires of your heart will be in harmony with what his will for you is personally. You see, sometimes Christians think, well, if I delight in the Lord and I get too close to the Lord, then he's going to have me do something that I don't want to do. He's going to have me be a part of a ministry that I don't want to be a part of, or he's going to have me go somewhere I don't want to go, maybe to the jungles of South America, and I don't want to go to South America. But you see, it doesn't work that way. Oh, I know there are times where the Lord will speak to us and, and telling us to do something that we can resist it, but as you delight in the Lord, the way that it works out is all of a sudden that desire comes on your heart. Lord, I'm feeling a desire to go here, to do this thing. He begins to work in that way because you're drawn close to the Lord and his desires become your desires. And so delight in the Lord, get close with the Lord, walk with the Lord, and he'll lead you to where there is much water. And what do I mean by that? It won't be this dry, barren, you know, hot, dusty kind of thing where the Lord is leading you where he wants to lead you and what he wants you to do. In verse 25, then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. So one of the things that will keep us from getting you know, very prideful and, and big-headed and arrogant that everything that we have, the giftings, the talents that we have, the intelligence, the personality, the finances, the success, whatever it might be, anything that you have which is good, which is a blessing, remember this, that it comes from above. It is a gift from God according to His grace. So we can boast of nothing, any success that we are enjoying or any blessing that we have, it is strictly because it's been given to us by heaven, given to us from above. It's not because of us, of our great intelligence or our togetherness and all of this. It's in spite of us. It's because of his grace and his goodness. John says a man can receive nothing unless it's been given to him from heaven. And James would write the same thing in his epistle in chapter 1, verse 17, as he writes that every good gift um, is from above. So John is saying, it doesn't bother me that the crowds are de decreasing and the people are following after the one that I testify of. That's the way that it should be. As John continued speaking to those who are, you know, just kind of a little bit uptight and anxious and worried that, hey, the crowds are getting smaller. Because remember, when we saw that John, we were introduced to John the Baptist, that the Gospels tell us that people were coming from all over the country, great multitudes, great huge crowds that were coming out to see this man of the desert. And all of a sudden, they're leaving John to go see Jesus. And John's not worried about it. He's not upset about it. And the thing is that sometimes 
that we can get upset because things aren't working out the way that we thought they would work out. But if I am, for example, me, if I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, feeding the flock of God, loving the people, serving the people, if the crowds get smaller, then that's up to the Lord. And I don't have to get upset. I don't have to, to fret about that. John continues here making his point, verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said that I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friends of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So John is saying, listen, I'm not the bridegroom. I am the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the best man, if you would. Now, most of you have gone to a wedding, uh, at least, or you've been married yourself, and, and I've officiated many, many weddings. And of course, at the wedding, there is oftentimes the wedding party, and there's the best man. And the best man has an important role, and that is to help the bridegroom get ready, to help him and to encourage him. But once the bridegroom and the bride come together and they're joined together, the best man has done his job, hasn't he? And he's not the focus. It's the bridegroom. It's the bride that is the focus. And that's essentially what John is saying. The, the best man is rejoicing in that couple just as everybody else is, is rejoicing in the fact that they've come together and that they are one now in that covenant of marriage. So that's essentially what John is saying. Listen, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I'm the declare that behold the Lamb of God to point people to Jesus Christ. That's why the crowds are getting smaller. And that's my ministry. And so as John has done his ministry, even though the crowds are getting smaller, he says here in verse 29 that therefore this joy of mine is fulfilled. You see, that's what we're to be about. The mindset and what we learn from John here. And that is that I've heard his voice. I, I've pointed people to the Lord. And as you and I do that, our joy will be fulfilled. And I think it's important for us to consider here what is being said. But I think that every single one of us that are here listening to this message, we want joy, don't we, in our lives? I don't think there's anyone here that would say, I don't want joy, I just want to be miserable. I don't want any joy whatsoever. We want joy, but we want joy on a consistent basis. We want it daily. We want our joy to be full, as John is saying here. Oh, my joy is full. Just having that great joy in the Lord, that sense of peace and assurance and, and, and just um, gladness of heart is what he's talking about. And the way to do that is that we are faithful to hear from the Lord, to hear the voice of the Lord and then be faithful to tell others of the Lord. And that was the ministry of John. And that's too how you and I can have our joy that is fulfilled. You see, oftentimes Christians are taught and Christians believe that my joy is only going to be full if I get something from the Lord. Now, I know that the Lord blesses. And every good gift comes from above. And when he does bless in whatever way it might be, we rejoice in that. Yes, we do. But if you want your joy to be fulfilled in a consistent daily way, really overflowing, is that when tonight before you go to bed or tomorrow morning before you start your week, 
This is what you do. You spend time with the Lord. You spend time in the Word, hearing the voice of the Lord. And then secondly, during the day, you point people to the Lord. And that's what John was all about, to point people, prepare people for the Lamb of God. John said, behold, there he is. I'm not upset that people aren't flocking to me any longer. It's not my purpose. That's not what I'm to be about. I'm the friend of the bridegroom. I want them to flock to him. Why? Because we will see, as we've already seen, that John testifies that it is Jesus that gives eternal life, just as Jesus said to Nicodemus. And the Father has given all things into his hand. And really, wonderful, wonderful is it in our lives and in our journey in life, in our Christian life, when we understand this, folks, that it is not just getting something from him, but it is learning from him and then pointing others to Jesus Christ who gives us eternal life, the one who is light, and as we do that, our joy will be fulfilled. And then John says something very important, verse 30, he must increase and I must decrease. So here we see the third must of John chapter 3. We saw the must of man, that is, that you must be born again, every man, every woman. If you want eternal life, you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. The second must, the must of the Messiah. I must be lifted up. I'm going to go to the cross for you, Nicodemus, and for sinful humanity to die for your sins. And then thirdly here in verse 30, the must of the minister. That is, I must decrease. It is a key if you want to truly be a minister of Jesus Christ, if you truly want to be a servant of Jesus Christ, to hear his voice, to walk with him ultimately, you have to to have your joy fulfilled, you must say that I decrease and he increases. In my life and in my witness, in my service to you, Lord, I'm going to focus my attention on you. I'm going to live for the purpose of sharing you. I must decrease. And if I'm not as popular as others at work or with you know uh, those that are linked to me in my life, that's okay. If nobody knows me, if they're not impressed with me, if they hold me out at arm's length, I just want to point people to the Lord and be a witness for the Lord. And so that's something that all of us need to understand. I think this is a good verse to underline, that he must increase, I must decrease. And I know that's something that the Lord is continually working in my life and even in my ministry, because every pastor wants to be considered successful. Every pastor that pastors a church or starts a church or a ministry, they want to be successful. They, they have vision. They want to reach people. But yet, so oftentimes, what uh, we can be you know, faced with is the definition of success. What is success? And oftentimes, we'll look to the world's definition of success. If there's great crowds, if there's, you know, you've got great popularity, if you're well-known, if you have this ministry, if you're reaching all these people, if you have a big building, you have a huge budget, you have all the staff, 
And that isn't the measure of successful in the Lord's eyes. It is, I'm going to decrease, and you must increase, Lord. And it's being humbled before the Lord and glorifying Him alone. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He did not say you're to point to self and you're to pump up yourself. And, you know, it's all about self-image. And, um, you know, you got to promote yourself. That's what the ministry magazines are saying today. And it's not biblical. You must decrease and he must increase. I want you guys to see Jesus clearly, to point past me and to point to Jesus Christ because he's the one that gives you eternal life. He's your help. He's the one that is, you know, the light of the world. He's everything that you need. So Jesus said that if you truly want to be a minister, if you truly want to follow me, you've got to die to self. It's not about, I want to be in the spotlight and I want to exalt myself. And I need to promote myself and all of this that is taught today, sadly enough, even amongst those who minister. He's the one that increases, I decrease. And John understood that. In verse 31, And he who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth, and he who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. So John wants everyone to know where Jesus comes from. Jesus is different than everyone else, every other religious leader, because Jesus came from heaven. And he is above all, and he speaks truthfully and with all authority. In verse 33, he who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Listen, know this, always remember this, that God is true. He is faithful and true, and the words that he speaks are true. And when we receive his testimony, we're saying that, Lord, you are the one that is true. Jesus would declare, as we're going to see in chapter 14, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a truth, but the truth. God is true. Now, sometimes I'll talk to people, and we discussed this a little bit on Wednesday night when we were talking about the priority of the Word of God and prayer in our lives. And somebody will come in, and they'll be facing a circumstance or have a problem, and I'll show them from God's word. This is what God's word has to say to you in, in the difficulties that you're facing or the challenge that is before you. And I'll give them a command of the Lord. I'll give them the truth of God's word. And sometimes people will say to me, well, I don't know if that'll work for me. Or I don't know uh, if that's the best way. I, I'm going to go this route. I've heard this person say this on the radio, on on." TV or whatever it might be, and they reject the Word of God, and they're going to go in another direction. I don't know if that's true for me, if that'll work for me, if that's the best advice for me. Paul would write in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. And yet some Christians will struggle and wrestle with and question God's Word. And I'll say to him, do you believe the word of God? Oh, I believe the word of God. Then why don't you apply the word of God? Do we really believe in the sufficiency of the word of God? That God's word is sufficient for every area of our life to give you the answers and direction. And see, that's where a lot of Christians can struggle. And not just believing in the inerrancy and the you know, authority of Scripture, but the sufficiency of Scripture. 
And a real key to successful, victorious Christian living is saying that God is true and His Word is true and He is above all. And I don't care how smart, how many degrees a person may have. Listen, they're not as smart as God. So if they give you advice or counsel that is contrary to the Word of God, know this, that God is true, let every man be a liar. And remember that God, that His commandments as He gives to us and His truth, He's going to enable you to do that. And that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian. You say, I can come up to you and I can give you advice, I can give you some counsel, but I can't empower you to do it. But God will give you the ability to do it through the Holy Spirit as we surrender to Him. And as He says to you, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, you don't argue with God. You say, okay, Lord, I've heard your commandment, and Lord, help me. Help me to love my wife as Christ loves the church, to, to serve her and to lay down my life for her and to cherish her and, and to love her unconditionally. Lord, I need your help in that. As he tells us anything in life, to forgive that person that has hurt you deeply, that he's going to help you to do that as you go to him and just rely on him and trust in him. And God will never ask you to do something that he can't help you to do and empower you to do. He doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry, I was wrong in that area. I'm wrong in your case. I can't help you. He doesn't do that. He is above all, not most, but he's above all. And he can do all, and he is true, so receive his testimony. In verse 34, as we finish this morning, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. So it's real simple here. Believe in the Son, trust in him, that what he did for you on Calvary's cross, that you know that he's alive, he rose from the grave, that as you do that, you have everlasting life. If you reject that, the wrath of God abides in you. And that's why he said that Nicodemus, you must be born again. And I must be lifted up. And as we recognize that he was lifted up for us, dying for our sins, and we come and surrender, being born again by the Spirit of God, then as you travel through life, remember this, that he must increase and I decrease. It means that, Lord, I'm just surrendered to you in every area of my life, and I want to hear your voice, and I want to give testimony of you when I have opportunity. And as you do, you're going to experience true joy in your life. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this incredible chapter and given to us. And I'm so thankful that it's recorded for us so we can know for sure that we must be born again. And, Father, I pray that as we go and get ready to go to the communion table here, that, Lord, we know that it's for the Christian who has entered into this new covenant with you, Lord, a covenant of love, a covenant that is established because that, Lord, you allowed your body to be broken and your blood shed for forgiveness of sin. But, Lord, if there is anybody here that you've never been born again by the Spirit of God, that as you've come and surrendered to Him, will you come? The invitation is always come.
to come and believe in him and what he did for you and going to Calvary's cross and dying on the cross. Recognizing that you're a sinner in a hopeless state, that you're dead spiritually. Recognizing that he's the one that gives eternal life. And as the light is shining on you right now, I pray that you would realize as it exposes that you are a sinner, that the Lord wants to save you. He didn't come to condemn you, he came to save you. But the truth of the gospel is this, if you do reject him, you're condemned already. He loves you. He proved his love by going to the cross. Will you surrender to him? Will you give your life to him right now? You can do that right where you are. As you come and you pray, not just with your mind, but with your heart. A surrender heart saying, humble before the Lord, that Jesus, I am a sinner. And I believe that you are the author of eternal life. And I believe that you love me so much that you came to this world and you died for me. Forgive me of my sins. And please be my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you're alive right now, just touching my heart very deeply. Please come sit on the throne of my heart. Thank you for hearing my prayer and help me to live for you all the days of my life, to hear your voice, to grow in your love, to live for you. In Jesus' name. And Father,